Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be with you again. And thank you, Jordan, for leading us um, just in a wonderful time of worship um, on, the, on the love of God and the extreme price that He has paid for us to redeem us, to be His people. We're living in some pretty crazy times. Uh, the world seems to be going crazy uh, in terms of panic, buying, and, and things like that. There isn't this, there's also the story of the widow who gave her last toilet roll in the offering because it was her last night, but anyway. But we live in uncertain times. We're living in times that don't make sense uh, despite us trying our level best to live um, godly lives and uh, we find ourselves in the midst of a crisis the likes of which we haven't seen before. Or we, there's, there's, we've, we've seen something like it, but, but the full extent of it hasn't been seen because things are so uncertain. Um, governments don't know what to do. Uh, leaders don't know what to do. Uh, as a result, the impact on us is undecided. Our future hangs in the balance. And so it's a good time, really, to dwell upon the constancy of God and His love for us. And it's a good time to go back to Hosea, where we've been in the series on the love of God, O love that will not let me go. Uh, We started it the last time, and we went through uh, Hosea 1. And um, it's a series on, on God's pursuit of those whom He loves. And I hope that it will be a great encouragement to each one of us in these trying times, in these times of uncertainty, because it shows that we have a God who pursues us to love us. It was a sort of fitting segue to the previous series on what Christians pursue, so that was all about what we do to pursue God, and now this series is about what God does to pursue us, His people. And so the motivation for, for studying the, this series in Hosea is really to understand the nature and character of God, to understand this God whom we worship and who we are coming here to sing songs about, who is this God? And so if we understand Him better, we can worship Him better, and we can worship Him correctly in the way that He wants us to. We also want to understand love as it is from a biblical perspective, from a theological perspective, and not just from our own superficial, subjective points of view. We want to understand what love is in God's eyes. What does He consider love so that we can understand it and practice it and apply it in our day and age? The study will be confronting to us because it will confront us with our own ideas of God, with our own ideas of love, and when we compare it with what Scripture has to say about who God is and how He loves, we will be confronted, and that's a good thing. Why is this a series about love? Well, Hosea 3.1 says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So this is really the relentless pursuit, the relentless love of God that pursues His people so that they can turn back to Him. And also, the the, the shocking part about this about this series, about Hosea, is that it presents to us love in terms of marriage. 
in terms of a husband and wife, in terms of very intimate terms. And so we're confronted with the picture of God and His people as a husband and wife. And that's the picture that God wants us to see and God wants us to understand that He doesn't just look upon us as creatures and Himself as Creator, but we are His bride. And that's something of a gospel message, isn't it? Where the church is the bride of Christ. And so last time we looked at chapter 1, and uh, just to give you just a bit of a recap and an overview, um, God commands Hosea to take for himself a wife of harlotry. And so we want to understand that and we want to uh, and, and, and explore that further today. But most commentators agree that to understand a wife of harlotry is someone who would eventually become unfaithful in the marriage. And why should Hosea do this? Chapter 1, verse 2, for the land commits not just harlotry, but flagrant harlotry by forsaking the Lord. And so we, we looked at this idea of covenant. The land was such an important and integral part of the covenant of Israel that, 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 is, that God has made with Abraham and, and then carries on through Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua till they're into the land. And now this land that was meant for God's people, a land full of milk and honey where they could worship Him and be set apart for Him. Now this land is forsaking that covenant and that God to pursue other gods. And so the covenant is in serious breach and God is now confronting Israel through Hosea with this breach and betrayal of loyalty and covenanthood by saying, Hosea, I want you to demonstrate what Israel has done to me by going and marrying someone who's going to be unfaithful to you and break your heart like Israel has broken mine. And so the marriage of Hosea and, and Gomer is a, a symbol of the relationship between Israel and Yahweh. And their children who were to come would be a symbol of the judgment that was to come. And so Jezreel was the first um, son, and, and that name was supposed to mention scattering. Israel is not going to be the same. It's going to be scattered. And then there would be a, uh, other kids, Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy, and Lo Ami, which means not my people. And so the God who has revealed himself in the burning bush to Moses as I am, now says, I am not your God. And so the covenant God of Israel is withdrawing himself and so almost as if the glory is departing from Israel and, and God is leaving Israel in her sin. But then towards the end of the chapter, there's the promise of restitution because God is faithful to his covenant. And, and again, we see the covenant referenced because the verse says, yet the number of sons of Israel will be like the sands of the sea. And again, we see that covenant referenced, which was given to Abraham, that your, your descendants will be like the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. And, Israel is, and God is, is reiterating to Hosea that that's going to be the case. And so despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God will still be faithful. Hope is on the horizon. And so even we see that the names of the children are changed and the identity is reversed, signifying that the curse is reversed. And so we see the fulfillment of, of Hosea, of his prophecy in three ways. In the immediate 
uh, present, we see that the, the betrayal is continuing. In the, in, the, in the near future, we see the Assyrian invasion, which is going to decimate Israel and scatter them. And then in the distant future, we see um, the return from exile. We do see Israel gathered into the land, not fully, but partially. We do, we do see that those who are not my people will be called my people, and that's us. The Gentiles have been included into the family of God, and once again we see God's covenant faithfulness to the promise He gave Abraham that in you all the nations and families of the earth will be blessed. And so we sitting here today are proof of the faithfulness of God to what He promised a man thousands of years ago. And so we, as, as we study Hosea, as we've already seen, we come to see the character of God, that He's a covenant-keeping God. He is a God who loves His people, but He is a God who cannot bear the sins of His people, and so He will do whatever He needs to do to bring them back to Himself as a pure bride. He will judge sin, and He will let us experience the consequences of sin, whatever those will be, but he will not leave us there. And so that's the, that's the sort of context and background which we bring to chapter 2, which we'll be looking at today. But before we do that, I want to just take a slight detour uh, and perhaps ans- ask the question, why should we study the Old Testament? Why should we look at something that happened years and years and years ago? Um, and what's the relevance of looking at Hosea today? Why should we look at this book and study this book? What relevance? Why is it true for us today? And I want to, I want to suggest three things why we don't like studying the Old Testament. And you may not, uh, you may not fall into this category, but I think largely uh, we would say that three reasons why we don't like studying the Old Testament. One is we're not Israel. Number two is we don't live in a theocracy like Israel did. And number three thing is this whole thing of law versus grace. I mean, Israel was under the law, we're under grace, we're no longer under the law, so what relevance does this have in our lives today? And I want to, I want to counter that by saying, number one, even though we're not Israel ethnically, we are the sons and daughters of Abraham, is it not? Galatians 3, 7 says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. And so as we've been singing, as we see redemptive history come to fruition, we see the cross as being that instrument by which the nations are included. Yes, we don't live in a theocracy, but is God not sovereign over the world today? We live in these times of great uncertainty. Is God not sovereign over these uncertain times? Just because we have a democratically elected leader does not negate the kingship of Christ over us today. And as to this whole law versus grace issue, we need to understand that everyone who lived in the Old Testament who was a believer was justified by faith. Habakkuk tells us that the just will live by faith and have always lived by faith. God calls Abraham out of work. Abraham's a pagan. God acts in grace. 
God brings Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt for no fault, for no, they don't deserve it. That's an act of grace. God gives Israel the law. That's an act of grace. He saves his people and then he gives them the law so that they can live like his people. Israel is not saved because they keep the law. Israel keeps the law because they are saved. Grace comes first, then the law. So I'm not saying that the law doesn't matter. We, we live by the law today as well in, 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 by a moral code. You shall not have any gods before you still applies to us. You shall honor your father and mother still applies to us. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not, look at, you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions still applies to us. And so why should, we, why should we study the Old Testament? Let me say that we see the constancy of God. We see that the God who spoke to Abraham and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and the God who moved Israel through the Red Sea is the God of new community. There's great surety and confidence and assurance when we study the Old Testament to see the continuity of God, the character of God is not, this, is not changed. If we see Christ as one, as, as one kind of, of God in one representation and we see Yahweh as different, we've understood neither. How can we sing yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same, all may change, but Jesus never glory to his name, if we think that there's a discontinuity between the old and the new God? And so we need to study the Old Testament to understand the character of God so we can be sure. We think standing on the promises of Christ my King, what are those promises? Has he just given them to us in the New Testament? No. They come to us throughout the old, from the dawn of time. And when we see ourselves and the role that we play in redemptive history, we can stand on those promises and on the character and nature of God, even in uncertain times. But the question that now as we go into Hosea chapter 2 is, Israel is also in uncertain times. Assyria is at the border, threatening to invade. What is Israel going to do? Is she going to trust in her God who said that he will protect her and keep her in the land? Or is she going to prostitute herself by going to other gods trying to gain their favor and hedge her bets? We also come to that really important question has the church replaced Israel? Should we just ignore Hosea because those, fulfillment, or those prophecies apply to Israel only and not to us anymore? It's a really important question because if we see the bride of, Christ, of God, of Yahweh, as Israel in the Old Testament, and we see the church as the bride of Christ in the New Testament, then has God swapped brides? Has God been unfaithful? And therefore, is he right in accusing Israel of unfaithfulness? It's a really important question because if we want to see God as the God who is continuous and, and never changing and constant, then we need to come to a clear understanding of who are we in the redemptive plan of God's history? Has God swapped brides? Listen to Paul in, in Romans 11. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. 
Romans 11, 26, uh, uh, verse 11, again I asked, did they stumble? Did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. And then he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. We need to study the Old Testament to see what God has promised to Israel, that it is going to come to fruition. We should keep our eyes and ears open. Meanwhile, we live as his bride now and need to be pure and chaste for him as he required Israel to do, but Israel failed. So we want to understand what was Hosea's message to the people of his day, and what is Hosea's message to the people of God's church now? We want to understand what the Spirit is telling us. So with that sort of long introduction, I want us to open to Hosea chapter 2. I've titled this, The Beloved and the Betrayed. And we're going to look at it in three sections. One is the rebuke of sin, verse 2. The rod of punishment, verse 3 to 13. And then the restoration promise, verse 14 to the end, verse 23. And I've called this the beloved and the betrayed because throughout this we see God is the betrayed party. And he's bringing a charge and an accusation of infidelity against his beloved, Israel. And as we saw in in chapter 1, we see two distinct sections of judgment and promise in this chapter. And we'll go through it um, verse by verse as as best we can in the time that we have. And so we want to start chapter 2 from verse 2 because actually... Chapter uh, verse one of chapter two it belongs with chapter one. It sort of that's one whole unit. So we're going to look at Hosea chapter two, reading from verse two. Contend with your mother, contend. Strive. Bring a charge against. It's almost outrage that results in a lawsuit. And this is Hosea almost like speaking to his children. Tell your mother. Contend with your mother. Contend with your mother. Contend. For she is not my wife and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. And that's the rebuke. That's God's rebuke to Israel through Hosea by him taking a wife who eventually proves to be unfaithful. And it's almost like God is telling, Israel, telling Hosea, contend with Israel. Bring a charge against Israel. Bring a lawsuit against Israel. Because this is grounds for divorce. But the divorce is not complete because there's still hope here. And we see that in verse 3. Let her, let her put away her harlotry or I will strip her naked. Very harsh. Very strong language. Or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. 
I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land and slay her with thirst. And we're taking back to the imagery of Israel born in the wilderness when they were brought out from Egypt. And God's saying, I'm going to do what I did back in the day. And I'm going to take you back to that wilderness. When you were crying for, for water, and I gave you water from the rock. Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry. Oh, wow, that's, that's again really... And it's not the fault of the children, really. The, throughout this, the children aren't really blamed for anything they have done, but they, they, their only role in this harlotry is that their mother is, is, is unfaithful. And so, like the gospel, we see the bad news come first. And we need to understand the badness of the bad news before we can appreciate the goodness of the good news. And the bad news is really bad. So why is, why is God so upset? Why the outrage? Why the charge? Why the lawsuit? Why the threat of divorce? Verse, verse uh, 5, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. Why? For she said, Here's the reason. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. What does God consider harlotry and infidelity and unfaithfulness when we attribute His provision to other sources? The food and the drink, the food, the, my bread and my water, my, my, daily, my, my daily sustenance, my daily food. The wool, the wool and the flax, wool was, was meant for clothing in, 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 in cold, in, in the winter. Flax was linen, clothing in, in, in the summer. And God is saying, everything I have given to you, you are now saying has come from somewhere else. And you are going after those sources to keep providing you with these daily commodities when it is I who have given this to you. As we read this, I want us to look at how do we do the same thing? Do we acknowledge that everything that we have, material, spiritual, whatever, is from the hand of God and only from the hand of God? I believe that in the days to come, in these uncertain times, we will be tested to really understand where is our source of provision from? Is it from our jobs, from our employers, from the government? Should we go after them? Should we seek to satisfy them? Or should we worship God? Will our praise be as exuberant in the midst of trial as Chad has been teaching us through James? Or will we go after other gods? And we don't really have to go other gods in terms of Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism or any, any, anything that takes the place of worship, any anything that takes the place of meaning, anything that becomes the ultimate source of joy and truth in our lives is what we worship, is an idol, if it's not the true God. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, 
my oil and my drink. And therefore, what does God say he will do? What is the rod of punishment that he will bring? Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them, and she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. And so, why is God taking these harsh steps to bring Israel back to Him? And so, I want us to note a principle over here that, that very often what seems like hardship to us and what seems like God's heavy hand upon us and what seems like God is being unfair to us and what seems like God is putting obstacles in our way and is not wanting to progress further is because, yes, He's doing that to prevent us from going further into sin. Because Israel has failed to acknowledge Yahweh as her source of provision and is going after other sources, he's now going to build a wall and put a hedge around her so that she does not go to those false sources. It is protection. I do not want you going any deeper into this. I do not want you to slide any further down the slippery slope. You've gone far enough. And truly, again, this is an act of grace. God's discipline is an act of grace. We read in, in, in Hebrews, those who He does not discipline are illegitimate. And the fact that He is disciplining us shows us that we are legitimate sons and daughters. Count it all joy, brethren, when you undergo manifold trials. That's what we've been learning. And so sometimes what seems like God's harshness towards us is actually His kindness. Because there is no other source of sustenance aside from Him. But yet we go chasing after these other sources, thinking that that's where our livelihood and our joy and our meaning comes from. And He's saying, no, don't go there. That is the path to ruin. How can you have joy where there is falsehood? How can you have meaning where there is error? And so God is wanting to bring us back to Him, to fellowship with Him, to that relationship of intimacy with Him. God is wanting to bring Israel back to His covenant relationship with Him so it, because that is where the blessing is. The blessing is not with Baal or Asherah or Molech or any of those other gods. The blessing is with Yahweh. We continue with the rod of punishment, verse 8. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain. Now we, can, we can sort of pass over that word no, but if we've paid attention enough in the Old Testament, that word no is the word of intimacy. And Abraham knew his wife Sarah, and Adam knew Eve. It's that, it's that special relationship bond between man and wife. And God is saying, my wife Israel has stopped being intimate with me. For she does not know that I was to give her, that it was I who gave her the grain. God wants his people to know him. God wants his people to know him like a husband and wife know each other. 
and failure to know God in that intimate way is what God considers to be infidelity. Because nothing, nothing occurs in a vacuum. The moment we stop knowing God is the moment we start knowing other gods. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil and lavished on her silver and gold. And what did he do with that which they used for Baal? How many times are we guilty of going after the blessing and the objects that God has given us and getting so caught up with what He has given us and forgotten to actually love Him? Are we after God for what we can get? Or are we after God for who He is? It's the old question, are we marrying for love or are we marrying for money? We all know the answer about which one's true love, right? And what God has given her and lavished on her in terms of actual wealth and, and blessing, silver and gold, is now what they started making these idols from. We see that right back immediately a few days after they come out of the Red Sea. Hey, Aaron, we don't know where this guy Moses is. Here's a little gold. Make us a God who will lead us now into the promised land. What God had blessed him, what God had given the Egyptians to just oh, take this gold and go. Now they're using it what to worship who? A calf. Can you, I want us to sense the betrayal, the depth of that betrayal. God has performed 10 plagues, 10 miracles in Egypt, each one greater than the other. And yet, and yet, there is betrayal. And I don't, and, and, and when I read that, I'm like, that's me. God has blessed me in every conceivable way, and yet when trouble strikes, my mind goes somewhere else. So what, will, what does God say he will do? Therefore, I will take back my grain at the harvest time. And that word take back is snatch away. It's almost like grab. Therefore, I will take back my grain at the harvest time and my new wine in its season. And I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness, her shamelessness in the sight of her lovers and no one will rescue her out of my hand. Again, she's, what, what does Israel say? I will, I will go after my lovers who have given me my grain and my water and my wine and my oil and my wool and my flax. And God says, no, no, no. I'm going to take that away from you. And then you're going to be naked. And then you're going to look like a real fool. Because the gods who you thought were supplying you with all these things that I have given you, you will realize that you're naked and hungry and destitute because I have withdrawn. It's not the gods who are giving you these things. It is I. No one will rescue her out of her hand. I'm going to take away your false sense of security. You think you're untouchable? I'm going to take away your false sense of security. 
I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I'm going to stop your false worship. All of these, these festivals and feasts had been given by God to Moses, commanded in the law, that this is how Israel was going to remember God's work in their lives as a nation. And now they had just prostituted and, 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 and started using all these events for, for worshipping other gods. What they thought was true worship had degraded into false worship. And, and that's something, again, I, I think we ought to take very, very seriously and carefully because when we come here Sunday after Sunday, is the worship that we are bringing true worship? Are we just singing songs over the screen to music or do we actually in, truly mean what we are singing? There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And all those who are plunged into that flood lose all their guilty stains. Do, do, we, do we have a sense of joy when we sing that because my sins are washed away? Or do we, do we sing here and sit here and stand singing but our hearts are with other gods? Our hearts are occupied by the cares and snares of this world. I will destroy, verse 12, I will destroy her vines and fig trees of which he said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me and I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field will devour them. I'm going to take away your false sense of entitlement and privilege. You think you deserve this? No. I want us to notice also how many times Israel says, I am going to do this. I will do this. And then God says, no, no, no. I will. Whose will is going to, is going to prevail, do we think? We see the contrast between what Israel says, my food and my water and my oil and my drink, and says, God says, no, no, that's mine. That's what I have given you. It's not yours. I will destroy her vines and her fig trees. He's, he's going to decimate their crop. He's going to make them realize that it is not Baal, who is the god of fertility, who is watering their fields and making them enjoy the grain and giving them bread and making the, the, the vines bear fruit and giving them wine. He's going to destroy all of that. He's going to take away what they think they deserve and make them see where it actually comes from. I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field will devour them. Imagine, imagine the Barossa and, and there are just trees growing up in between all the vines. Shrubs. Imagine if all the roos are coming in and having a feast. Imagine, this, I, I don't know if you've heard of a bug called phylloxera, and it, 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 um, it's, it, it's this um, virus that attacks all the vines, and once it's in, it just decimates the whole crop. And South Australia, I think, or McLarenville is the only place that is supposed to be phylloxera free. 
which is why there's so much um, a care taken to you know, ensure that when you're coming in from other states, you, do, you, you wash your car and you wash your feet and your shoes and, and all of that, and you don't bring in any, any uh, viruses from interstate. And God's saying, I, I will just decimate this whole thing. I will punish her, verse 13. I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me. When Israel's making herself pretty and, and trying to look good in terms of impressing these false gods, and Yahweh's saying, I'm not going to have any of that anymore. And so we see that the, God's rebuke is the charges that he lays against Israel for harlotry, adultery, for, for attributing Yahweh's provision to other gods. They did not know him. They forgot him. Imagine a wife forgetting the husband. And so we see the infidelity unpacked from verse 2, and it just becomes more detailed and more detailed and more detailed and more detailed, and we get a bigger and a, and a more fuller picture, and God colors in the lines and fills in the detail about what exactly is this adultery. You're saying, my will, I will, mine. You've forgotten who gave it to you. And then we have the rod. I will snatch away. I will strip you and make you naked. You want to prostitute yourself, fine. But you will be stripped and it won't be for pleasure. There will be pain and shame. Some principles that I think we can draw from this, this is God will turn our pleasures into pain when we forsake Him. And the things that bring us pleasure and the things that we think bring us joy and fulfillment, He will turn those very same things into sources of great pain and grief for us. God will make sin less and less pleasurable to us till we find our pleasures in Him. That is what He is doing. He wants Israel to recognize that her true source of pleasure and joy is in Him. I'm not trying to say that, you know, just because we may be going through seasons of suffering at this time, but there has to be some sin in our lives. I'm not saying that. I mean, look at Job. God, God cites Job as uh, the paragon of, of righteousness. He brags about Job to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Have you seen anyone as righteous as him? And yet, he loses family, friends, wealth, fortune, everything, gone overnight. He has no idea why this has happened to him. So I'm not saying that just because we may be going through a season of trial, that there definitely has to be some sin in our life. But we need to look. If we're playing fast and loose with God, then He will allow us to bear the consequences of our sin. And He will put that hedge and wall around us. And He will cause us to go through the wilderness till we are brought back to Him. And so, 
after, after these serious warnings and this, this rebuke and the rod, and, and God says, and she was offering sacrifices to them and following her lovers, and she forgot me, we can almost sense that God's going to say, you know, and so I'm going to forget them. I'm going to forget her. I'm going to forget her children. Or what do we read? Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And so there's almost a sense of just complete reversal. And so we come to the restoration promise now in, our, in, in the last section of what we're looking at. And so the, 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 the perspective moves from judgment to hope. It's so unexpected. Psalm 103.10 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sin, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And that is what we see played out here. Yes, there, God has judgment. Yes, he, he promises judgment. But then again, there is hope. We see grace upon grace. Love in the nth degree. Poured out in extravagant measure. On an unfaithful Israel. The faithful God and His faithless people. We are the beloved, but how we betray. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. There's just language of intimacy and depth and love and almost seduction here. Such a marked difference from the rod of rebuke that was in a few verses before. I will bring her into the wilderness. Why? Because there's no more bowels over there. There's no one else to distract. Then I will give her vineyards from... It's almost like he's bringing Israel back now to that time that he, that he brought them out of Egypt and through through the Red Sea and into the wilderness, and then where? Into the promised land. Then I will give her a vineyard from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Achor was a place of Achan's sin. Remember when they went to the promised land, Jericho was taken, but then Achan decides that he wants to hide some stuff in his, in his, in his tent. Israel loses a, a subsequent battle. Joshua is gutted. What, about, what will be done? Hey, there's sin in the camp. But now God says that He's going to reverse that place of sin as judgment and open, up, open it as a portal of hope. Where you sinned, where you deserved punishment, where you deserved to die, where you deserved everything and my wrath to be poured out, now that becomes a place of hope. Who can do this except God? Who can bring about such a massive reversal other than God? And she will sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And God is saying, he's, he's going to turn the tide. He will do it. Not because Israel deserved it, not because Israel obeyed him, not because Israel played the part in the covenant, but because he is a loving God, and Israel is the beloved. That is the extent of love that God has for his people. 
It will come about in that day, verse 16, declares the Lord that you will call me Ishi and will not call me Bali. Ishi is, is a word for my man or my husband. And Bali is another derivative of Baal, which is Lord or Master. You will, in that day, return and, and, and recognize the fondness that you have for me, and you will call me in intimate terms. And you will no longer remember Baal. And such a reversal, right, from the the verses that we've seen before, and she's gone after her lovers, and she's, she's gone after and offered sacrifices to Baal, and she forgot Yahweh. But now it's completely reversed because she's going to remember Yahweh and forget all the other gods. So that they will be mentioned by their names no more. And in that day, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. All the, 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 the decimation of the crop, all the wild animals which were going to come and ravage your crops and your vineyards, and all the drought and disease and pestilence that was going to come, it's going to be wiped away. He's going to make a covenant with all those creatures to say, don't touch this land. That is how much God loves His people. And what does He want them to, what does he want them to understand? It's not Baal. It is Yahweh, the one who, who created the universe. He is the one who controls the crops and the lands and the produce. He is the one. He is Jehovah Jireh, your provider. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land and will make them lie down in safety. All this threat of war that is looming, there's going to be peace. And, and so we, we come to this point where we, we have to understand that, you know, some of this has come true, and some of this hasn't. I mean, Israel is still at war. But yes, she did experience peace when she came back from exile. So there is a part, there's a partial fulfillment, but it's, there's a now but not yet aspect. There's still some, a lot of it yet to be fulfilled. But here's the beautiful thing, verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and then you will know the Lord. Betroth, it's, it's, uh, it was the practice in, uh, in, in ancient Near East where it's, it's not just talking to someone about marriage, it's going the next step to actually where the, where the parents give a bride price and negotiate about how much are they going to give the, the girl's family for her hand in marriage. And so God is saying, I'm serious about this relationship and I'm going to betroth you. He's going to pay the price in what? In his attributes. In righteousness and in justice. Right, uh, righteousness, the straightness of his character. In justice, in his fairness. In loving kindness and in compassion, in loving kindness, his covenant loyalty, he will remember the words of promise that he has given and he will betroth himself to his people with that covenant. And in compassion and mercy, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, utter dependability, utter reliability. 
then you will know. Again, we have that beautiful term of marital intimacy. Then you will know the Lord. Martin Luther says that this is a wedding ring with six precious stones, and he's so right. Because the, fifth, the sixth stone over here is forever. And God promises to betroth himself. And he switches over here from them in the previous verses to you. It becomes more personal. It's a new relationship of betrothal, intimacy, promise, surety. This is going to happen. And it will come about in that day that I will respond. Some of you may have answer. It will come about that in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and to the new wine and to the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel or another name for Israel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. It's not Baal. Because God is going to make sure that the heavens pour out water on the land and the land is going to pour out produce and the produce is going to create that new wine and grain and oil and everything that Israel needs to sustain herself and live the life of blessing in the land. And so the promise, uh, the, the judgment on the land is reversed. And the last verse there, 23, I will also have compassion on her who had not com obtained compassion and I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. How beautiful to see the judgment of those names, Lo Ami, Lo Ruhama, be reversed. You are my people. I am your God. This is where we come in. Peter tells his readers, once you are not a people, but now you are the people. You are, you, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people set apart unto God. Why? So that you may declare the glories and the wonders of Him who has called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. And so when we study the Old Testament and we study uh, Hosea and we see uh, uh, the, the prophecy, we see the prophecies fulfilled. And so we can be sure that this God who Hosea is talking about is the God that we worship today. This is our God. Eternal, timeless, forever, promise-keeping, holy. I mean, false gods give us things, but the true God gives us himself. I will betroth myself to you. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But he wants to enter into this covenant relationship with me. And can it be? That I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me to him who de to death pursued? Amazing love. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's take away that, that God wants to know us and wants us to know Him. 
He knows us already. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows uh, the days uh, that we are going to live. He knows every single detail of our lives. Do we know him as much as he knows us? And he wants us to enter into that beautiful, profound, deep relationship with him. How are we going to know him if we don't know his word? He wants our most intimate moments to be spent with him. Our most ecstatic pleasures, our deepest joys to be with him. And rightly so because, you know, where else are we going to find everlasting joy? In your presence, there is life everlasting. I want us, I want us to understand that God pursues his people because his love for them is so very great and the blessings that he has in store for them are so much greater than we can imagine. And that is why he desires his people to stay faithful to him so that they would be continuously in that place of blessing, in that place of protection, in that place where they are hedged around and walled around so that there are no other distractions and no other gods to compete for our affections. Faithfulness is understanding that his blessings far outweigh any other blessings that this world can give us. And so as we go into this week ahead, as we go into a world where there's so much uncertainty around us and there's so much chaos and confusion and craziness, let us build and keep our eyes on Christ. Because that's what marriage is, that we have eyes for one person alone. And so we, may we have eyes for Christ alone in the midst of a world that is causing us to go into so many different ways. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, we just want to thank you for the constancy of who you are. You are the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you are a God who is calling us into covenant relationship of marriage with him. Lord, we who are unworthy, we who are distracted, betraying you, Lord, you want to bless us with so much and you want to bless us with yourself, Lord. Help us to see that being with you is so much better than being with the world. Help us to find that fulfillment that can be found in you alone and nowhere else. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak kindly to us and tenderly to us and woo us back, Lord, into your presence and help us never to depart from there because that is the place of our greatest security and our greatest blessing. That is the place where we can be with Christ. That is the place where we can worship him in spirit and in truth. And that is the place, Lord, of, of our greatest joy. And we pray that you would do this for his name's sake. Amen.